1972, Joey Gallo killed in Little Italy during dinner at Umberto's Clam House. They get there by violence, and often as not, they leave by violence. Between three and five million dollars in cash and valuables was taken from the Lufthansa cargo terminal out at Kennedy Airport. I can give you guys a half a million dollars a year without a problem. New York City is a war zone for mobsters and their targets. Hello everyone and welcome into episode 38 of The Black Hand, an organized crime history podcast. I'm your host, Bliss Grieve, and on today's show, we're going to be talking about the crazy life of John White Devil Willis, a white guy from Boston, Massachusetts, who became a heavyweight in the city's premier Asian organized crime syndicate with links to the Hong Kong triads. Before we get started, if you want to support the show, please rate it and go follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at The Black Hand Pod. And please feel free to reach out. Also, consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at The Black Hand Pod as well, but without further ado, let's get right into today's episode. Though his early life is shrouded in mystery, it's believed that John Willis was born on May 11th, 1971 to John Sr. and Francine Willis. And it's likely that he was born in the eastern section of Boston's Dorchester neighborhood between Adams Street and Dorchester Bay, due to the large population of Irish Americans and Vietnamese Americans. However, from the start, John Jr.'s life was rife with dysfunction. According to Willis, his father was a hard-drinking carpenter who collected money for the Irish mob. But after having his life threatened for breaking the jaw of a local gangster, he left the family and headed back to his home state of North Carolina when John Jr. was three years old and never came back. He would later speak on his father's effect, saying, quote, I just knew that I didn't want to be like my father because I didn't want to be a drunk. I didn't want to be abusive towards women. And due to John Sr.'s abandonment, Willis's mother was forced to struggle to support the family by working in a shoe store. And with all the free time granted by his mom's long hours, he began running the streets of Dorchester and fit right in with the neighborhood boys. Dorchester was a scrappy town famous for producing Winter Hill gang boss Whitey Bulger and later the Wahlbergs. And while John's older half-brother Richie and half-sisters descended into drug abuse, Willis channeled his anger into hockey, playing goalie six hours a night. But it didn't take long for his anger to manifest in more violent actions, and when a kid stole his sneakers in middle school, Willis beat him with a chair and got sent to an alternative school for troubled youths. However, if John was angry then, it was only going to get worse in the years to come. At the age of 14, after one of his niece's friends kicked him in the groin, Willis spit at her. Then his half-brother Richie, 34 at the time, hit him, knocking him down the steps of their triple-decker home. In a move he would later come to regret, Willis yelled to his older brother, quote, I hope you die. And just two days later, Richard dropped dead of a heart attack, one that Willis would later attribute to a coke binge. And of course this traumatized the teenage John who blamed himself for cursing his half-brother. But he wouldn't get a reprieve as the following year, his mother had her legs amputated due to diabetes. Unable to maintain her job at the shoe store, Willis was forced to skip school and wheel her around the house and bathe her. And despite all the care he gave her, the next year, while John was off with his friends, his mother died suddenly of a blockage to her heart. And just like that, at the age of 14, his mother, father, and brother were gone, and Willis was alone in the world. He later spoke about this time in his life saying, quote, It was tough. I'm not gonna lie. You grow up, you become a man in an hour. The house his family lived in was in his brother's name, so he was able to remain there, but he had no idea how to provide for himself. As far as social services knew, he was being taken care of by his half-sisters, but they were living somewhere else lost in a haze of drugs, meaning that John was left to return from school to an empty house and struggle to survive. 
and in the winter of 1985, with no heat, a 14-year-old Willis was forced to sleep under blankets in a chair in the kitchen, warmed by an open oven. Forced to go out and make a living, at the age of 16, Willis, who was deep into steroid use and bodybuilding by this point, looked more like an 18-year-old and was able to lie about his age in order to lock down a job at a bar near Fenway Park. And though he now had a job and ate meals at friends' homes, he was too proud to take many handouts and would rather go hungry than beg. But his job was about to help him form a connection that would make sure that he would never have to go hungry again. At the bar he worked, Sundays were Asian nights, and Willis was impressed by all the sharp-dressed young guys who his boss warned were gangsters. But one night, when John was working the bar, he saw a guy get sucker-punched by a large Korean man. Willis punched the attacker and pulled the victim away, rushing him back to the bathroom and flushing out his eyes. Despite that, when Willis turned around, there were four of the guy's friends staring him down suspiciously. For all they knew, John was the one who attacked their friend. But just as they were about to retaliate against Willis, the man he saved barked at them in Chinese. His name was Vei Peng Zhou, and he was a Chinese gangster who doubled as a bigwig in the local illegal gambling scene. On his way out, Joe handed Willis a card and said, quote, Here's my number. If you ever need anything, call me. And a few days later, John was down to his last 76 cents after spending his last meager earnings on food. He walked through the snow to the home of his half-sister, but she refused to answer the door and slipped a piece of paper under the door telling him to go away. Too broke to afford a cab home, he called the one person he could think of who had a car, Vaping Joe. Joe didn't hesitate to help, and just five minutes after Willis made the call, two BMWs pulled up with young Asian guys in stylish suits who told John to come with them. So with nothing to lose, Willis got inside, and they took him to a big house in South Boston. The plethora of rooms in the house overflowed like an Asian gangster frat house full of young hoods and their girlfriends, but Joe welcomed him inside. He was told to stay there, and as foreign as this new world seemed, Willis didn't hesitate to agree. It was warm in the house, and the crew was treating him like family. He needed a home, even if it was just for one night. The next day, Willis was the only white guy among the young Asian gangsters at a small Vietnamese restaurant near the Pai Phong Gate in the heart of Boston's Chinatown. The neighborhood of noodle shops and fish markets was among the densest in the city, with more than 6,000 people living in less than one-third of a square mile. It was there that John learned that Vei Peng Zhou was part of a gang called Ping On, which controlled the area's illegal gambling dens and massage parlors. The group had been in power since the 1970s when its notorious founder Stephen Say immigrated from China. Back in China, he was a leader in the 14K Triad, a faction of the country's organized crime underworld with roots to the 17th century. He came to America to make Boston a new stronghold for the Triad, recruiting local immigrants and schooling them in the gang's beliefs of familial loyalty and ruthless enforcement. Pingon provided protection for local merchants who let them eat and drink for free in exchange, while Say ran his prostitution and loan trucking rackets out of a Chinese restaurant he managed in town as a front. The gang cracked down hard on debtors, roughing them up if they didn't pay their bills, but they also stood by their own. When Stephen Say was called before a presidential commission on Asian organized crime, he refused to testify and was jailed for not cooperating. But even with him behind bars, Pingon continued to run the streets of Boston's Chinatown. And during this period, Vei Peng Zhou, Saul, and Willis something of unusual value to ping on, a tough but vulnerable young orphan twice their size who could provide muscle and loyalty. Joe told Willis not to go back to work and gave him $500 to go shopping where he was fitted for Miami Vice-style custom suits and equipped with a pager and cell phone. Even though Willis had just met Vaping Joe days before, he embraced the transformation, later saying, quote, 
These people took me in, took care of me, like you know, I was their brother, their son, so that became more important to me than anything else. So when they told him they wanted him to go learn the ropes in New York City where Ping-On had a network of connections, Willis happily ditched high school and hit the road. He shared a small apartment in Chinatown under a video store on Canal Street with a few Chinese recruits who didn't know what to make of this big white teenager in their midst whom they named Bok Gwai, or White Devil. And though his big size had made him a confident, if not cocky, teenager, he now felt ostracized, like the runt pledge of an alien gang. They refused to address him in English and laughed as he struggled to use chopsticks. Then, a few weeks later, in a foul-smelling Chinatown pig slaughterhouse, Willis got handed a gun for the first time as he trained on shooting homemade targets. Afterwards, John and the three others were tasked with robbing gambling dens and check-cashing joints for brothers Peter and Jackie Lau, two of the city's most notorious crime lords. Respected and feared, the Laos were part of Hung Mun, a gang faction that ran nightclubs, drugs, and robberies in New York and was in good relations with Ping On at the time. But Willis's first heist for the Laos didn't go well. Armed with a 45, he and his crew drove to a midtown Manhattan sweatshop where they were supposed to rob the guy with the money going in. But the moment Willis climbed the steps inside, he heard a boom as a bullet rushed by, leaving a smoldering hole in the wall behind him. He fled down the stairs outside, shooting behind him wildly as he ran. And though he and his crew escaped unharmed, Willis swore he would never be so unprepared and taken by surprise again. For a subsequent heist, he learned to wait outside until a guy delivering money in a suitcase approached the target, then attack, and if the bag was chained to the guy's wrist, he'd pull out a machete and offer to hack it off. So before long, he'd become so hardened that he could get chased by a rival gang of machete-wielding hoods through Chinatown and escape unfazed. And as his bond with his Asian counterparts grew, Willis dedicated himself to learning their language. Late at night, while the other gang members slept, he carefully transcribed Chinese characters onto note cards which he carried with him and studied throughout the day. And with his other gang members only speaking to him in Chinese, he began learning more and more and could soon decipher lines of dialogue from the plethora of Chinese gangster films they'd watch at the apartment. And though the Asian gang shied away from dealing drugs because of the heat they brought, Willis agreed to deliver some coke for one of his New York bosses, Jackie Lau, on the side. When Willis returned to Dorchester, his friends marveled at his bizarre transformation from Southie to Asian gangster. After being in New York for so long, Boston seemed different to Willis, smaller, and in Chinatown, less organized. With the boss of the Ping-On gang, Stephen Say, now having fled to Hong Kong after his jail sentence, there was a new leader in charge called Tong Ngo, nicknamed by Ming, a short middle-aged Vietnamese-born Chinese man who walked with a limp and ran the Hoi Ping Association, a gambling den in the heart of Chinatown. And with his high profile, he'd been the target of attacks. According to John, Molotov cocktails were thrown at his house and gasoline was doused on his cars. He needed a bodyguard and someone to enforce the bad debts. And on the recommendation of the Laos in New York, Willis got the job. And just like that, a white guy named John Willis was basically the number two in Boston's Chinese mob, a situation basically unheard of. Up to this point, the Chinese were very insulated. They didn't trust outsiders, and before his rise, John was about as far outside as he could get. But he was willing to do whatever it took, whatever was asked of him, and succeeded in task after task, proving to be trustworthy and loyal. Eager to prove himself with the gang in Boston, he devoted himself to being a reliable and hardworking enforcer. Willis already knew how to fight from all his street brawls, but he had to practice the deferential behavior he'd learned from the Asians in New York, fetching tea for Ming as he shadowed him around town and checked the car for bombs. But John was no ordinary lackey, and he was astutely observing how the kingpin ran his business. He was also feeling more confident in the Asian world, less a stranger than a powerful young player ready to stake his claim. One day when he went to the hospital to see one of the guys who had gotten the eye knocked out of their socket by a rival gang member, Willis was shocked that no one was taking charge. 
For years, he stayed in the background, but he felt the time had come to rise up, and under John's direction, the gang tracked down the rivals and brutally beat them down, but there were about to be bigger problems in Boston's Chinese underworld. And on January 12th, 1991, five crew members of a rival San Francisco triad had been executed in town after the Boston crew heard they were making a move for local control in what became known as the Chinatown Massacre. Soon after, with the gang wars growing, John was on lookout for one of Ming's gambling dens when a crew pulled up and assassinated a ping on kingpin standing next to him. Then, one of the gangsters pointed the gun at Willis and pulled the trigger, but the gun jammed. Despite that, all he could worry about was Bai Ming being the next target, and he was right. As they were leaving a wedding one night, the police apprehended a sniper on the roof of a nearby building, taking aim at Ming who escaped unharmed. But with John's growing sense of invulnerability, the rage that he'd been holding back since his youth boiled to the surface. For the past few years, he'd been taking steroids, which only made his temper worse, and to protect his boss, he started roughing up rivals and ensuring payback from debt who owed Ming money. As a result, Willis was convicted and jailed for extortion, then in 2000 got five years in prison for dealing heroin, which he served at Concord State Prison in Massachusetts. But once he was released and returned to his role as Bai Ming's chief bodyguard and enforcer, he became more distanced from the life he had before crime. One night, he came out of a club in Chinatown to find a young drunk guy urinating on the bumper of Ming's brand new BMW. And when Willis yelled at him, he recognized him as a kid named Tommy he used to play hockey with in Dorchester. And though John tried to defuse the situation, when Tommy let go of an off-colored comment, Willis angrily approached him. But a van door opened and a bunch of other Dorchester guys spilled out to surround him. Before long, rumors spread around Dorchester that Willis had threatened to kill Tommy and the others. And before long, it was never the same going to the old neighborhood again. But that of course didn't lower his reputation in Chinatown, and one day in 2010, while hanging out in his usual spot one day, John was called to a meeting with Bai Ming who wanted to introduce him to someone who had just come in from China. The distinguished large man in his 60s who was surrounded by several hangers-on asked Willis if he knew who he was, and of course he did. It was Stephen Say, the legendary gangster who had started the Ping-On Gang. He had been living overseas but recently returned to Boston where he had heard a lot about the white man they called Bak Gwai. Say didn't talk much business or much at all, he just wanted to acknowledge Willis which was meaningful enough for him. But the 39 year old John was far from a kid anymore, and after working his way up through the gangs for the past two decades, he had found everything he'd lost as a child in this other world. And though he still had love for Bai Ming, Wei Peng Zhou, and the other guys who raised him, he felt like he'd earned the right to make his own move and build his own business. And it was then that he found his big opportunity in the oxycodone business. A distributor in Cape Cod, Massachusetts that John knew told him of the rising demand for the pills which now represented a $3 billion industry, nearly a third of the total prescription painkiller sales in the US. The hub was Florida, which boasted 90 of the top 100 pharmacies selling the drug. Loose regulations had spawned legions of pill mills, doling out the drug in mobile MRIs and strip clubs, and earning South Florida the nickname Oxy Alley. And though Ming had always told John to stay away from dealing drugs because of the heat they brought, Willis was willing to take on the risk, even if that meant keeping it from Ming and his friends. So to build his empire, John decided to go outside of his community for help. And despite his estrangement from many in Dorchester, he still kept up with old friends, some of whom had long wanted to get in on the business. One was named Brant Welty, and before long, besides Welty, a dozen or so other had joined up. And with this crew formed, Willis found himself in a role reversal, teaching the other Southeast the Asian culture and values that had made him a success. 
Working with the contacts in South Florida, John and his crew would buy and package the pills in a mansion they rented on their Pompano Beach waterfront in Florida. Using multivitamin bottles they bought at drugstores, they carefully replaced the vitamins with tabs of Oxy, then sealed them back up like new. By plane and car, they deliver the drugs to dealers in Cape Cod, marking up the pills they bought for $9 to sell them for $15 apiece. Before long, they were making as many as 5 trips a week, with as many as 8,000 pills at a time, and Wills was cashing in. But in November 2010, the FBI was monitoring Wei Chen, a brothel owner in Cambridge, Massachusetts, when surveillance picked up John's red Hummer out front of his place. He then emerged carrying a large bag of marijuana, and before long, the feds were able to get a wire on him. And though Willis had been on the radar before, the FBI realized he was running a serious game. He knew about surveillance tracking, he was always looking for cars and switching phones. Regardless, one day that fall, Willis was arrested driving his Bentley in South Carolina without a license. But despite having $100,000 in cash on him, Willis wasn't arrested, tipping him off that the feds were possibly building a case against him. And after several months of investigation, the FBI had finally had enough to arrest Willis. The final break came in March 2011 when they arrested one of John's couriers delivering oxy pills in Fort Lauderdale. Later that month, the feds stormed John's home on the morning of his daughter's ninth birthday and carted him away once and for all. Then, after pleading guilty to conspiracy to distribute oxycodone and money laundering, Willis received a 20-year sentence in federal prison. Twelve others were also convicted for taking part in the oxy scheme, even John's wife accepted a plea for tampering with a witness. John Willis is currently still serving out his sentence at USP Canaan in Waymart, Pennsylvania, with a projected release date of mid-2028. That's really all I have for you guys today. I hope you all thoroughly enjoyed today's show, and tune back in next week for episode 39. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating and follow the show's Instagram and Twitter pages at the Black Hand Pod. And feel free to reach out with feedback, suggestions, and comments. Also, please consider giving a little bit to the show's Venmo at The Black Hand Pod as well. But with that said, I hope you all have a great rest of your day. This is your host, Bliss Grieve, signing out.